Well, good morning. Good morning. Let's pray together this morning as we get into God's word. God, we thank you for your word to us. And um, God, we thank you that we can read it and soak it in and hear what you have to say to us. And I just pray that this morning as we engage in this topic that um, for some of us um, might be new, for others might be um, well-worn paths. God, I pray that you would... um, that you would show yourself again to us. Father, we need you. We need your word. We need who you are to work in our hearts and in our minds this morning. And we ask that that would just be true of our worship and true of our study today. In your name we pray, amen, amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning, and um, I hope you're ready, because we're going to take a deep dive into Scripture this morning, um, and we're going to be looking at a passage from Matthew 4, and Keith a little bit ago read um, this passage out of a different gospel, because this story plays out in several of the gospels, and so we're going to read from Matthew 4, and start in verse 12, and so if you want to grab your Bible, or turn on your phone, or do what you need to do to get in the Word, that would be a helpful place to start this morning. And so I'm going to read the section of scripture that Keith read, but I'm also going to read a little bit before this, um, before that passage, because I kind of want you to hear it in context. So stick with me, hang in there. We're going to read this, and then we're going to unpack it, and then we're going to hear what it has to um, do for us today. So that's where we're headed. All on the theme of discipleship. So from Matthew 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, when he had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, friends, as we approach these words this morning and we hear them, I recognize as someone who grew up in the church and has spent a lot of time in this setting, um, I can remember write songs from Sunday school about this passage. Did a song come to anyone's mind while I was reading this? I will make you fish. Thank Faith Freeze, of course. Love it. Thank you for that. Sunday school teacher, I will make you fishers of men. We won't sing any more right now. Um, right? Great song that many of us learned, but sometimes it means that we can come to these passages that we know so well and we don't even expect to learn anything new, right? 
We've heard this before. We've walked this path before. And yet also in the church, we have people who are hearing some of these stories for the first time or haven't heard them often, and they read the story and hear about this guy named Jesus who said, I'm gonna make you fishers of men, and they think, that's awesome. What is that about? That sounds so cool. Someone should write a song about that, right? And so together as a community, one of the things that we do as we come to God's word is that we're inviting God to show us something new or to do something new in us today. That's our prayer. So we surrender this morning all of our preloaded assumptions, we come with all of our questions, and we wonder what God has to show us. And so I kind of want to take a deep dive into some of the historical context of this passage. Um, I actually preached on this passage a couple of months ago, and so I needed to um, take a different angle, and I want us to kind of understand some of the context of what was going on in this time period. And so um, fasten your seatbelts, because here we go, and we're going to start with a map. Okay? This is a map. This is the region of Galilee in northern Israel. Um, in the northern area of Israel, you have a Sea of Galilee, which is actually a lake. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and about seven miles, or rather, 13 miles wide and seven miles long. It's a pretty large lake. And Jesus, he grew up to the south of the Sea of Galilee in that town called Nazareth. Um, the Sea of Galilee is filled with fresh water. It's abundant with fish. Um, and in this area, it has very low elevation, and so the climate is really mild. And it means that year-round, you can kind of sleep outdoors, and it's comfortable. Us Minnesotans, we would love this, right? This is our jam. Um, and so Jesus, we read in Scripture, he worked as a tecton, which in Greek, it can be translated carpenter. And oftentimes, you know, and I grew up in this too, it conjures up this image of Jesus working alongside of his dad, creating things with wood. Um, however, in this region of Galilee, um, wood was not often used. If you go to this region of Galilee, there are not very many trees. Um, a lot of furniture in your home and other tools were made out of stone. And so as we think of Jesus being a carpenter, actually that's translated more as a construction worker. Jesus was working and creating things out of a lava rock that was popular in that area. There's a quarry to the south of Nazareth that probably Jesus spent some time in. So Jesus was more likely more of a construction worker than a carpenter with wood. I don't know if that ruins any images for you. It did for me. Um, and so a <clears throat> little bit of a shift, but he worked alongside of his dad um, in the family business. This is what Jesus' family did. And so Jesus is on the scene in this region for three decades. And we have some of these stories of Jesus growing up, right? Jesus in the temple and he's teaching or he's reading the word and Mary and Joseph go off and they leave him for like three days, remember that? We have all these stories of Jesus growing up, but it's relatively kind of calm. And then we get to this passage and suddenly John the Baptist, he's arrested and it's like everything shifts. Things change, something is happening. And it is that at this moment, Jesus begins preaching in synagogue after synagogue this same message. This time has come. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. 
And while we don't have a lot of time to unpack what that kingdom of God, that kingdom of heaven means, I want to invite you to just think about that phrase for just a moment. Because if you're a guy who's been relatively unknown up until this point, who's going around in a land that's used to being under the threat of different kingdoms, and you're announcing a new kind of kingdom with a new king that is near, the kingdom of God is at hand, how do you think that's going to go for you? So he is going around to all these synagogues and he's preaching this message. And if you're hearing these, this news, this might feel a little threatening to you. You might wonder about your livelihood. You might wonder about the safety of your family. You might wonder, if I, am I gonna be alive when this is done, when this new kingdom comes? Or maybe you don't even think about that yet. You just think, who is this guy and what does he have that he thinks he can share this message with us without any show of force? Where are his weapons? Where are his people? And so Jesus is going from synagogue to synagogue and he's preaching this message and then Jesus starts to draw in followers. He starts to draw in people and that's the passage we're unpacking today. And now Jesus is gathering followers and he is very well positioned to go and gather some touch nap followers. About five miles east of Nazareth, it's not on this particular map, but east of Nazareth and to the south is a large community, it's a large city called Scythopolis, and it's a huge Greco-Roman city. This city is the center for the Roman Empire, it's a military hub. Um, It's also a cultural hub. It has an amphitheater in it which can seat about 7,000 people. So there was a lot going on in this city. It had a large university. It had a temple. And so if you were looking to find the cream of the crop, if you were looking for the thinkers of your day, the leaders of people, you would go to Scythopolis. It was the place to be. And so if you're a guy and you're going from synagogue to synagogue and you're announcing a new kind of kingdom with a new kind of king and you need followers, you would go to Scythopolis. You would gather up the best and the brightest to follow you. Okay, are you with me? Okay, you're with me. But here's the deal. In very Jesus-like fashion, he does not do what everyone expects him to do. Instead, he goes for a walk around a lake. As Minnesotans, don't we love this? This is Jesus, this is what he does. And so he goes for a walk around a lake. Jesus instead, he heads to the north of the Sea of Galilee to this place called the Triangle. And the Triangle are these three communities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. That was the Triangle to the north of the Sea of Galilee. Three communities. The first, Bethsaida, is a community, a fishing village of about 600 to 700 people. Probably 18 to 20 extended families lived in this community. Um, Five of Jesus' disciples are from Bethsaida. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Philip are all from this area. Um, Chorazin, to the north a little bit, um, was northwest. It was a little bit larger than Bethsaida. It was probably about 1,500 people. There's a large synagogue there. And then Capernaum, which was Jesus' home base for two to three years of his ministry. 
Now in this region, in this triangle to the north of the Sea of Galilee, discipleship was a way of life. Discipleship was not something that was introduced when Jesus came on the scene. It was the way that people lived. Discipleship is not a word that began with Jesus, but people from all over Israel came to this region to be discipled by one of the rabbis. So as Jesus, as he walks along the Sea of Galilee, and in verse 18, we read this verse. As Jesus was walking beside the sea, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting the net into the lake for they were fishermen. Right, we've, many of us, we've heard this verse before. But fishing was just a thriving industry in this region. You can imagine with a lake this large, that would be the case. Um, A first century historian named Josephus said there, there were about 330 fishing boats on the sea, on the lake. There were 16 different ports along the lake. Um, Fish was a staple of the diet. If you were in this region, you would eat meat maybe once a week if you had the money to do so. The rest of the time, you were dieting on fish. The fish from the Sea of Galilee was exported um, as far away as Rome. Um, So Jesus, he comes across Simon, and he comes across Peter, um, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, and he says to them, come and follow me. Come and follow me, which can also be translated as come and be my disciple. It's a word, Talmud. And Talmud in English can mean follower, it can mean student, um, it can also mean apprentice, which is probably kind of the closest translation of the relationship that Jesus is offering here. And Jesus says, come and follow me. He says, learn from me, study under me, be my apprentice. And then he goes on and he says, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. Now that phrase, fishers of men, is not just something cute that we throw on Christian artwork and stitch on pillows, right? But it's actually a popular Greco-Roman idiom. And they would say fishers of men to talk about being a great teacher. Because if you were a fisher of men, you would be able to catch people's attention. You would be able to catch their imagination. You would, you would have their attention and you would be able to teach them well. So it was a way that they talked about being a great teacher which explains the reason why these men dropped their nets and they followed Jesus, right? Because these men were offered a chance at moving from being a fisherman, which was a pretty ordinary job in their day, right? They knew that life. They knew what was out before them. When suddenly this man comes along and says, I am going to make you something great. They were like, here we go. Right? Because great teachers, they were revered. Great teachers, they were loved. Great teachers, they were followed. A little bit farther, Jesus came across another pair of brothers, James and John, and they were sons of Zebedee, right? Their dad, Zebedee, was also a fisherman, and so they had spent the whole night 
um, fishing during the evening, and in the morning, the fishermen would gather and they would mend their nets to get them ready for the next day. So Zebedee and his sons, they're just kind of doing their work, they're doing their task, and in walks Jesus, a relative stranger to them, and he says to this pair of brothers, come and follow me, study under me, I will make you a fisher of men. And the brothers, they leave their nets, they leave their supplies, their boats, their father, and they followed Jesus. I mean, this was a big deal because in these days, you learned your trade, you learned your craft, your livelihood from your family or you were apprenticed into this. Whole family businesses were passed down throughout generations. We don't know how many hundreds of years the Zebedee family has been fishing in the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus comes on the scene and these brothers are like, all right, we're following Jesus. They left everything. Friends, what would it take? What would it take for these four men to drop everything and follow Jesus? I mean, can you imagine for just a moment, you're just doing your job in your cubicle, right? You're sitting there, you're pounding it out, and in walks this man. What would it take? You're in your class, you're just going through the motions, you're sitting learning from your teacher and in walks someone, here, follow me. What, what would it take for you? So in order to understand this just a little bit better, I wanna just take you on a five minute detour, okay? A five minute detour and take you through some of the education system in this day and age. And for a lot of you who have just started school, this, this might be a little bit of an overload, but here we go. Just a quick detour, a little bit of the education system because I think it'll help us understand what discipleship really means in this context. So um, if you are a young Jewish boy or a girl in Galilee, you would be taught in school by a local rabbi. Um, if your area was wealthy enough to have a rabbi, that would be your situation. If not, there might be an elder in the community that would kind of run the elementary school and do your teaching. So as elementary school, there was someone in charge of all of those kids. So from ages six to 10, it was called Beit Sefer or House of the Book. So from six to 10 years old, kids would gather and they would learn the first five books of the Bible. Here's the deal. At age 10, those children would have the Torah, the first five books memorized, all right? Um, so then the top of that group, those that were showing that they could learn well, um, if they memorized well, if they articulated questions well, they would move to the next stage of education called Beit Talmud or House of Learning. And this was a school, um, a room that was attached directly to the synagogue. And during the years of um, ages 10 through 14, the school um, was focused on helping the students learn then Joshua through Malachi, right? The rest of the Old Testament. So around age 13 or 14, these students would now have Joshua through Malachi memorized. Here's the thing, 33 books, friends. The entirety of the Old Testament, these students would immerse themselves in the scripture and they would learn it. 
and they would know how to ask questions and they would have studied it, memorized. After finishing this level of education, if you were a girl around the age of 13, you would get married and you would start having children, right? If you were a boy, you would go off and you would learn your father's business or you would be apprenticed by someone. Um, But the very best and the brightest of this group, like the 0.0001% of these kids, if you were male and you desired to be a rabbi or a teacher, would move on to the third level of education called Beit Midrash or discipleship, okay? So if you desired to teach and you were showing you were smart and you would, you would learn well, you would move on to this third stage of education. This was like creme de la creme, right? Um, the top of the class. And so what these boys would do, if you were a teenage boy who was really smart, you would go out and you would find a rabbi or a teacher and you would start to follow him around. You would start to follow him around and you would ask questions and you would just do life with him and then after a certain time, the rabbi would notice, hey, this this kid is following me around, right? So he would start to grill you and he would ask you all of these questions about what you had learned and who had taught you and your theology and all of that to see if you were smart enough and if you were a good fit. And only then was he was assured that you were smart enough, you had a proper work ethic, you were a good fit, did the rabbi say something like, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Now if that happened, your whole family would throw a party because it was rare to get that sort of an invitation from the rabbi. It meant that your future was secure. So your family would throw a party and your goal became threefold. There were three goals of a disciple, of a rabbi, and the first goal was to learn the rabbi's yoke. Because every rabbi knew the Torah, they knew the scripture well, but they also had a certain interpretation of it. So your goal was to learn the rabbi's yoke, which was their interpretation of scripture, the sacred text. And so you would not only memorize the information, memorize their theology, but you would wanna learn how your rabbi thinks. Right? You would spend a lot of time with them learning not just what they knew, but how they knew it and how they talked about it, how they explained it, what questions they asked. And in turn, that rabbi would explain to you everything they knew. The second goal was to become like your rabbi because at the heart and soul of discipleship, it was becoming like your rabbi. And so you would travel with your rabbi from synagogue to synagogue, you would listen to their teaching, you would eat meals, you would move into their house, you would sleep on a mat um, by their bed, you would live life with your rabbi. And the third goal was to carry out your rabbi's work in the world. The whole point of going through this discipleship process was for you to become like your rabbi and then in turn to go and make disciples. And so a time of learning this yoke would happen and you would be doing life with your rabbi and then he would turn to you and say, okay, you're ready. You have what it takes. Now go and make disciples. Sound familiar? Friends, here's the thing that's crazy about this story. Peter and Andrew are not the best of the best. They are not the top of their class. How do we know this? Right, because they're fishing. 
James and John are not at the top of their class because they're fishing with their dad. We know that these men did not make it to discipleship. They probably did not make it to that second stage of Beit Talmud. They are just ordinary, average guys living life as it's been laid out for them. When this radical thing happens and Jesus says, come and follow me. Friends, here's the thing. In the Jewish discipleship, the rabbi never was the pursuer of followers. They would never go out and find people to follow them. The student would work to earn favor and show that they were smart enough and prove their worth to the rabbi, but in this radical turn of events, Jesus is going for a walk, and he says to these very average men, come and follow me. And in this moment, Jesus is not only communicating to them that he's inviting them to follow him, but he's naming something in them. He says, I see you. He says, you matter and you have what it takes. And that if you follow me, if you learn from me, you can do what I do. That you can carry out my work in the world. Friends, have you ever had someone believe in you that it literally changed the course of your life? As I was thinking about this question, I've been fortunate to have a lot of people who did that for me. But just really briefly, um, my earliest memory was of my grandpa, who um, was a carpenter with wood, not with rock. And uh, he spent hours and hours in his workshop in the basement of their house, and he made all sorts of things. My grandma always said, one day when he dies, they're going to find sawdust in his blood. (laughs) And I would sit on this squeaky stool, and I would watch him just churn out all sorts of stuff. And he was a quiet man, and he never said much. And he had really small tools and walls of them, um, but then he had these really large machines, and when they were on, they would drown out the big brass band music he would play on his cassette tape. And one day I was sitting on this squeaky stool when he turned to me after his table saw quieted down, and he says, now you make the next cut. I mean, I, I could have lost fingers, right? Like the, the responsibility of that. And I remember turning around and looking to see if my mom was there, like if I was going to get caught. As my grandpa stood over me and helped guide the wood into his table saw. Friends, those moments speak volumes to us. Maybe it's the exact opposite and it's been ground into you that you don't have what it takes. That you don't really matter. I'm at the farmer's market on Friday in our church parking lot. I met a woman who said that last week her marriage of 33 years just ended. And she said for 33 years her husband told her that she was nothing. She said that um, he told her she didn't deserve to be loved, that she was worthless. And she said, "Um, when that's the voice you've heard for 33 years, it's really hard to start believing in yourself again. Or maybe you're just moving through life and you wonder if anyone notices you, if anyone sees who you are, if they think you have something to offer to the world. Friends, as we wrap up this morning, I want you to know that you have a heavenly father that pursues you. Friends, he thinks you matter and he loves you endlessly and he delights not only in what you can offer to the world but just in who you are. And he invites you to follow him. 
And with this invitation, he names something in you that you have what it takes, that you have gifts and abilities that with time and as you learn from him, that you can actually be like him and in partnership with the Holy Spirit, you can carry out his work in the world. I love these words from John 15. It says, you did not choose me, but what? I chose you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Friends, what does it mean to be a disciple in this context? It means that we do the exact same thing. It means we learn from our rabbi. It means that we study the scripture and what he has to say to us that we immerse ourselves in it, that we allow the word of God to shape our minds and our thoughts, but that we also do life with our rabbi. We not only study it, but we learn what he would do in different contexts. Someone should make a bracelet like that. WW, right? Remember those? And we joke at those things, but that's the heart of discipleship is learning what Jesus would do, how he would respond, and it flows out of immersing ourselves in scripture. And then finally, we carry out his work in the world. We recognize that we are a sent people and that we are on mission in the world. Jesus' last words say this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Friends, the invitation is there for us. Just as Jesus walked along the lake and met these brothers, these average men, and invited them to follow and to learn from him, to study him, to do life with him, to carry out his mission in the world, the invitation to us is the same. Are you following? Are you following? Because you have what it takes you have a heavenly father who believes in you and who welcomes you into relationship. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us. We know that it's true and we pray that the truth of your word would just encounter our hearts and our minds and our souls today. That you would continue in this journey of transformation with us. That we would grow into becoming more like your son, Jesus, who promises us life abundant, not life easy, <laughs> Um, but life abundant. And so we trust that today. We thank you for your word. In your name we pray, amen.